When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Hey, this is Ray, and welcome to Pots of the People. On this episode, we have me, Clint, and Sam. Brittany has some tech difficulties, and it's not in this episode, but we love Brittany, and she's sort of always on every episode, right? And then I'm joined by Stephanie Woodles Wax, the host of the new podcast, Last Day, and Ithaca's mayor, Svante Myrick, to talk about America's opioid crisis. I remember very distinctly when my brother told me he was shooting heroin. I thought, oh, oh, he's going to die, you know? And I think that's a misperception, and I think part of that is steeped in the reality of how we have dealt with treatment in this country. The lesson this week is about listening and always remembering that we are all learners. So on the last episode, we talked about sugar and the 1619 Project. And and shout out to James who emailed us, who reminded us about the link between the Haitian Revolution and sugar. We talked about the Haitian Revolution before as the only successful slave revolt in the Western Hemisphere, that it was a French colony. But what James pushed us to remember is that sugar was its main export and that Haiti produced so much sugar that it dominated the world market and made it the most profitable colony in the hemisphere and that the plantations were brutal as all plantations were. And James reminded us of the sheer number of people enslaved on the island of Haiti. So when the Haitian Revolution happened, it disrupted sugar production in Haiti. And it was the success of the Haitian Revolution that frustrated colonizers so much that it forced them to look for different places to uh, produce sugar. And they looked to Louisiana, they looked to Cuba. Sugar transformed Cuba in so many ways. We know that sugar transformed America. They went to Louisiana first, and we talked about that deeply on the podcast already. But I had no clue that sugar was such a big part of Cuban history and colonizing. I had no clue about the importance of sugar in Haiti pre-revolution and post-revolution. But again, it is about being open to listening and always remembering that we are learning. Let's go. Hey, y'all. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. So for my news, I wanted to tell you all a little story. Let's go back to 1954. It is, of course, the year that Brown versus the Board of Education becomes the law of the land and schools from higher education to K through 12 school districts are ordered to desegregate and integrate with all deliberate speed. Two weeks after Brown versus Board becomes the law of the land, the admissions dean at the University of Texas writes a note to the university's president at the time saying that he wants to share a proposal to, quote, keep Negroes out of most classes where there are a large number of girls, end quote. So essentially, the university admissions dean was saying to the president, hey, look, I know we've all got a vested interest in making sure that this ruling doesn't change the way of life here at the University of Texas. And in particular, we want to make sure that there are not a bunch of black undergrads becoming a part of this campus community. 
And so they wanted to make sure to exclude as, quote, as many Negro undergraduates as possible and therefore decided that year to require black students who were seeking undergraduate admission to the University of Texas to first take a year taking professional program courses at either Prairie View A&M or Texas Southern University, both of which are historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs. As a reminder, the last presidential debate happened at Texas Southern University. But the admissions dean also knew that this kind of gap year solution was only going to work for so long. So the next summer, in June of 1955, a four-person committee on selective admissions got together to figure out the long-term solution to keeping Black folks out of UT as much as possible. So what they proposed was that they could essentially loosen the standards of graduate level admission so as to not procure a great deal of legal scrutiny. And this actually wouldn't be all that different from what was already going on because there was a decision in 1950 called the CWAT decision that already forced UT to open up its graduate level ranks to black students. So this wouldn't actually change the status quo much and they figured that this would be a good next step. But the committee went even further. They did a little bit of research. And what they figured out was that if the 2,700 person freshman class that had just been admitted to UT had been admitted according to state proportions, that 300 of those 2,700 students would have been black. What they said, though, was that incoming UT white freshmen had a significantly higher average score on standardized aptitude tests than freshmen did going to Texas black colleges. So what they proposed then was a standardized test cutoff. They decided that cutting off the aptitude test score at 72 would, quote, eliminate about 10 percent of UT freshmen and about 74 percent of Negroes. To continue, they said, assuming the distributions are representative, this cutting point would tend to result in a maximum of 70 Negroes in a class of 2,700. So this was their way to get around any kind of legal scrutiny, but still minimize as much as possible the amount of Black students that ended up coming to the University of Texas. When the report was finalized and given to the university president, the committee advised the university president to get with other schools in the state system and encourage them to do the same. I thought this was a fascinating bit of information that comes directly from Asher Price. Uh, It's in the form of an article he wrote for The Atlantic, and he discovered these items from the university's own archives as he was doing research for a book he has written about Earl Campbell, who was one of the first players uh, to desegregate athletics at the University of Texas. As you can imagine, these archives were previously marked confidential, but he found his way in and is now publicly telling the story. But it shouldn't take scandal for us to know just how much institutions of higher learning then and now have continued to discriminate against black students. And yet and still, this can be such a clear example and clear story of all of the ways in which folks got very creative in their discrimination. So I wanted to bring this here because A, it helps to reveal all of the ways in which people found the way around the law to ensure that de facto segregation could continue to exist. And I also wanted to bring it here because we've talked about standardized tests before. And the fact of the matter is they have been racist for a very long time. They continue to be a barrier to access for so many people. And we see from this clear example that something that already had bias baked in was used to extend that bias across the University of Texas. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. 
So my news is about a new report from the Prison Policy Initiative. This is the first report that has actually developed an estimate of the number of people who are admitted into jails across the country each year. So you know, we've talked about the fact that there are about 11 million jail admissions each year, but the problem is that we didn't know how many people were admitted into jail each year. We only knew how many admissions in total there were, which also reflected you know, people who had gone to jail multiple times in one year. Well, according to the Prison Policy Institute, 4.9 million people cycle through jail each year. And that includes a large proportion of people who go to jail multiple times each year. And what was interesting about this report is that they broke this data down by state and found that South Dakota has the highest jail admissions rate in the country. Now, a report from The Appeal, which did a deeper dive into South Dakota, was really shocking. What they found was that Indigenous populations are less than 9% of the population in South Dakota, but represent nearly 50% of all people admitted into jail each year. So the jail population, half of folks are Indigenous in South Dakota. And not only that, but half of all people arrested in the state are arrested for drug and alcohol-related offenses. 85% of people arrested in the state are arrested for nonviolent offenses. Um, so you know, this is just a, a damning report on South Dakota, essentially creating a picture of a state that is jailing people for you know, offenses that don't at all endanger the public, for things that could very easily be approached with an alternative approach rather than jailing and arresting people, and an issue that impacts Native American communities at a rate 10 times higher than the white population in the state. As we know, indigenous folks are often left out of the conversation with regard to so many social and political phenomena, and it's essential that their voices, their bodies, their lives not be ignored when we have these conversations. And, you know, for example, in the criminal justice system, Native Americans are incarcerated at a rate that is 38% higher than the national average. Native American young people are 30% more likely than their white counterparts to be referred to juvenile court and to have their charges dropped. Native American men are incarcerated at four times the rate of white men. Native American women are incarcerated at six times the rate of white women. And Native Americans fall victim to violent crime at more than double the rate of other U.S. citizens. And 88% of violent crime committed against Native American women is carried out by a non-Native person, which is very different than what is typical of crime, which is that it is an intra-community phenomenon because people tend to live in close proximity to those who they commit crime against. You just don't hear about the indigenous and native communities and how they are impacted by so many of these things that are at the forefront of our national discourse. And climate change is another one of those things that we can and should continue to talk about. But this report is, I mean, 50% is, is a devastating, horrific number, and this can't be disentangled from a history of colonialism. We talk often about the safest neighborhoods aren't the neighborhoods with more police, but more resources. And one of the corollary studies that the Prison Policy Institute has done has shown that that is true, that poverty is strongly related with multiple arrests. Nearly 50% of people with multiple arrests in the past year had individual incomes below $10,000 per year. In contrast to that, to a third of people arrested only once, only one in five people who had no arrests had incomes below $10,000. Two-thirds, about 66% of people with multiple arrests had no more than a high school education. And people with multiple arrests are four times more likely to be unemployed than those with no arrests in the past year. So the question becomes, what do we do? It's like the stuff that we know. It's like if we actually want to fight crime, then it really is about fighting poverty and fighting addiction. It's about setting people up with support around mental health, 
And then it's just decriminalizing. So the overrepresentation of arrests in Native communities, in African-American communities, is not because people are, quote, more criminal, though that's what racists would like you to believe. It is because we have discriminalized a set of things. Like, you know, I'll never forget that in Minneapolis, until a couple of years ago, spitting was illegal. And, like, guess who got arrested for spitting? Only people of color. We covered on the pod probably a year ago, there was this law in a part of Georgia that said that riding your bike over a certain age on the sidewalk was illegal. And like, guess who are the only people that ever got arrested for that? So there are solutions. Like the prison population doesn't have to look like this. We don't need to lock people up in jails and pray that change happens, even though we know it doesn't. There are clear solutions, but this report is really powerful. The other thing I'll say, Sam, from a data perspective, I just had no clue that Georgia was locking up so many people. It was like, you look at it and it literally is like California, which makes sense because it's the biggest state. Texas, okay, I expect Texas to be like this. Florida, also expected it. And then Georgia. I was actually shocked at Georgia. I mean, I'm not surprised. (laughs) It's like, uh, so yeah, South Dakota had the highest rate of jail admissions rate, followed by Mississippi, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Georgia, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Kansas. And I think, you know, this is something that we see a lot of where the South and... And Delaware. Delaware has like 10 people in it. Yeah, Delaware was a surprise. Yeah, Delaware I didn't expect. But I think, you know, this is jail admissions, which is different than prison populations, but they track pretty closely where you have states like Oklahoma, which are in the top of both of those categories. But South Dakota really stood out with jail admissions in particular. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
dot com slash people. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. So for my news, I want to talk about D.C. statehood. There was a hearing last week in the House in which... D.C. statehood was brought up, and we had a lot of Eleanor Holmes Norton and a lot of local representatives from the Washington, D.C. area advocating for D.C. statehood, as they should, because there are 700,000 people in Washington, D.C. who currently don't have any congressional representatives in the Senate, and they have a non-voting member in the House. And it's interesting because if you go over the transcripts and look at some of the video, the Republicans were using this sort of age-old racist trope to suggest that the 700,000 people in D.C. should not have congressional and federal representation, and essentially saying that the lawmakers were too incompetent and corrupt to run a state government. And efforts to keep home rule out of reach for folks in D.C. is historically motivated by racism and this idea that a majority black city, as D.C. was until recently, which is a whole other conversation, is essentially unfit to govern itself. Several Republican committee members use this sort of racially coded argument against equal voting rights and representation for the folks in D.C. because they said the schools are too weak, its murder rate is too high, and for the residents to warrant representation in the federal legislative bodies that govern their lives, one, they are distorting those things, and then two, as if those things should be the metrics for whether somebody should be able to have people who represent them in Congress. But, you know, it's been 26 years since the last time statehood came up before Congress uh, in 1993 when the bill proposing full enfranchisement of D.C. residents failed on a vote that was 277 to 153. And Congressional Representative Norton at the time said that the vote had surpassed her expectations, even though 40 percent of her fellow Democrats voted against the bill in 93. And the bill that came before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform last Thursday, H.R. 51, is in a position to fare much better than Horton's previous legislation. It currently has 220 co-sponsors, which is way more than enough to pass in the House. But given the reality that we live in now, it almost certainly won't make it to the Senate floor as long as Mitch McConnell is in charge. And he called the prospect of D.C. statehood full bore essentialism, quote unquote, and they will never see the floor while he is in charge. It seems so intuitive and it seems so clear cut like, oh, you have almost a million people who live in proximity to the centerpiece of our federal government who don't have Senate representation, right? Meanwhile, you got the Dakotas and Montana and all these different places that have such a lower population of people who have two Senate representatives each. And this is grounded in a fear that the Republicans have of giving an area that is a sort of blue area more representation, also of giving black people and like a large percentage of black people more representation and echoes a lot of what we would hear during Reconstruction, right? This idea that like, oh, well, you all can't have self-governance because you are incapable of managing yourself, you're corrupt and all of these things. So again, the echoes of Reconstruction as they have over the last several years continue to manifest themselves. And just generally, I think we have to consider the fact that like you have people from Anacostia who are like mopping the floors of the Senate, but who can't have a senator themselves. You have people who like cook the meals in the cafeteria of Congress, but whose only representative in Congress is somebody whose vote doesn't actually count. You have folks who are working in the federal government, who live in Washington, D.C., and who have been doing that for decades, who work for a country that won't give them the full franchise. And that is 
just the most absurd, irresponsible, anti-democratic thing that I can imagine. So D.C. statehood has gained a lot of momentum, more than enough votes passed in the House, another reason to take back the Senate, take back the presidency, and it makes D.C. statehood a real possibility, which fundamentally changes the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who just want representation. This is being framed by Republicans as some sort of unconstitutional and unjustified power grab by Democrats. And first of all, that's not true. This is about representation for disproportionately people of color who have been denied the vote. But it's also ignorant of the history of how the existing 50 states came to be. An article in The Atlantic goes into some of this history where in 1889 and 1890, Congress added North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Washington State, Idaho, and Wyoming, the largest admission of states since the original 13 colonies. And this was a deliberate strategy by the Republican Party at the time in order to stay in power. So literally added six new states, 12 new senators, 18 new electors to the Electoral College as an intentional strategy to stay in power, right? And those are states that continue to impact presidential elections today, right? Those are the states that give the majority of their electors to Republicans, the majority of their senators to Republicans. And this was part of a political strategy by the Republican Party back then to remain in power. And now when we're talking about D.C., which is one future state, one population that is larger than many of those places that were admitted in the late 1800s, suddenly this becomes an issue of, you know, can folks govern themselves? Is there a lot of corruption and these same old tropes that have routinely been used against black people and black political leaders going all the way back to Reconstruction? So I think that there is a very clear and obvious rationale for adding D.C. as a state to the United States, just as a basic form of political representation and voting rights and electoral justice. And we can't let these arguments that are not only wrong, but also ahistorical, muddy the conversation about what should happen. I will say I didn't know nearly as much about this at all until I got older, because as a kid, it was like, well, there are 50 states in D.C., and D.C. statehood sounded like this sort of mythical thing. And then the more and more I learned, it was like, well, I don't really understand why D.C. isn't a state. You know, some people say, well, D.C. is really reliant on the federal government's finances. Therefore, the federal government should be able to control it because it essentially pays for it all. And that also is not true. About 33 percent of the district's revenue comes from federal funds. But the Tax Foundation, which is a nonpartisan organization, has noted that 20 states were more dependent on federal money than the District of Columbia. Now, D.C. residents pay more in federal taxes than people in 22 states. And it's true that the federal government does pay for the D.C. court system. And we've talked about that before, that if you get convicted of a federal crime in D.C., you're under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Prisons. But while the federal government pays for the court system, the local crimes are actually prosecuted by U.S. attorneys, not by district attorneys in the District of Columbia. So the financial case for not doing it actually doesn't make nearly as much sense. And remember that Congress does review all legislation passed by the city council. The president appoints all district judges. The district has no voting representation, as we talked about. And what is interesting about the little district that they're going to carve out that will technically still be the District of Columbia, the wrinkle in that is that it appears right now, the way the legislation is written, uh, the electoral votes will still go to that district, like what is the place where the federal government is sitting, which might mean that the inhabitant of the White House will determine where those three electoral votes go, which is not necessarily a great thing. But Otherwise, this bill is a good bill. 
My news is about Baltimore. So in Baltimore, the Gun Trace Task Force was a force of the police department that was uh, indicted and convicted for corruption. They were planting guns on people. They were doing a host of things that were really wild, and they got indicted and convicted, which we never see happen with the police that we talked about for a long time. The city of Baltimore is also under a consent decree with the Department of Justice uh, around corruption in the police force. Now, Mayor Pugh, who's no longer the mayor because she is having her own legal issues, she refused to lead an internal investigation of the police department when she was mayor. There's a state senator in Baltimore, uh, Bill Ferguson, who is a good guy and a great senator. He passed a bill in the state house that has a state review of the police department happening. That's the only review of the police department. Now, recently, somebody pressed the city, like, why are y'all not investigating the police department? And essentially, like what they said, literally, the response is they don't want to investigate the police department too much because they are worried about the fiscal impact on the city if they find out too much wrongdoing has happened. They're worried about the legal and fiscal liability, so they just don't want any review. And you're like, what? That is really wild. What's really interesting is the city solicitor, who's like the city's top lawyer, has done a lot of things that have been bad for people, but he was a judge before this, and he was a judge that was very much so in the criminal justice community. People loved him. His name is Andre Davis. People talked about him being a real beacon in the city. He becomes a solicitor, and it's like a night and day. His quote is, we have to be careful as we do this analysis that we not put our client, the police department itself, in a disadvantageous legal position. We have to figure a way to do a really thorough investigation while at the same time protecting our clients. Now, again, the clients of the city of Baltimore are also the citizens of Baltimore. But what does it mean when the city solicitor only thinks about the people he serves as the police department? And it's this logic that really is dangerous. And I just wanted to bring this here because I was shocked when they said this publicly, that the reason they're not doing a review is that they don't want the city to be liable. You know, what's wild about this is on the one hand, you have the police commissioner saying that they're not even doing an internal review yet, if they're going to do it at all, into the Gun Trace Task Force, which like you'll recall was a massive scandal revealed that there was a group of police officers that were engaged in a very intentional and organized crime syndicate, committing violent crimes in the city, extorting people, all of those things. And they're not even going to review that. But at the same time, the police commissioner is proposing a plan to quote unquote deal with crime in Baltimore, which involves more hotspot policing, quote unquote, focused patrol areas and micro zones targeting black and brown communities in Baltimore with more of the same type of aggressive policing that was characterizing the gun trace task force. So this is not only a failure to hold police accountable for what they have just been exposed doing, but it's also a doubling down on some of the same strategies that got us into this mess. So the whole situation is egregious and is an example of how a police department that gets so many of the city's resources is contributing to making the problem worse rather than better. You all out there listening might be like, man, policing, it seems so ridiculous. It seems so counterintuitive. I just wish there was a place where I could go to understand all of the research all the solutions, and like how we work together to stop this ridiculous stuff from happening. Luckily, I know three people who have created this incredible organization with a great website called joincampaignzero.org, where you can go and get all of the information you need and get all of the, the research, get all of the data, get all of the solutions. If you've not gone to join Campaign Zero, DeRay, Sam, and Brittany's organization, which is committed to ending police violence, you absolutely should. 
I imagine this podcast can feel like drinking from a water hose sometimes. We're just throwing so much stuff at you. And if you're like me, when I listen to some stuff like this, I'm like, man, I wish there was just one place where I could go to get all the information I need without having to have 20 tabs open on my computer. That is the place to go. So that is my plug for Campaign Zero. Join CampaignZero.org. I've learned so much from it, and you can learn so much from it too. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with Stephanie Whittleswax, the host of the new podcast, Last Day in Ithaca's Mayor, Savante Myrick. They join me to talk about the current state of the opioid crisis in America. Stephanie and Mayor Myrick, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, you both are here to talk about the opioid crisis. We've covered the opioid crisis before on the pod, but both of you bring such different perspectives. One, because Stephanie, you are the host of a new podcast called Last Day. And man, Marek, we haven't talked in a long time because we talked right after, I think, you've been a public statement about injection sites or harm reduction strategies. I just asked both of you broadly, sort of where do you think the state of issues around drug addiction as a public health crisis, like where are we today in practice? We've learned a lot in the last five years about what works, what doesn't work, and about how to keep people alive and get them on the path to recovery. And a big part of what we've learned is that what we did in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, what we did to incarcerate a ton of black men, brown men, for being victims of, you know, substance use disorder doesn't work, it turns out. It can make people feel good to lock away drug users, but it doesn't actually lead to a healthier, happier society. Now, have we put that into practice yet? In some ways, you know, I think cities are actually a good example of these laboratories that have been on the forefront. Some cities have put that learning into practice ahead of states and way, way ahead of this federal government. And as a result, we're seeing some pretty good results in the opiate epidemic you know, in Ithaca, since we put our plan in place, overdoses have decreased by 20%. That's over the last 18 months, we're at 20% decline. But when you go to places, states and cities that haven't adopted harm reduction strategies and medicated assisted treatment, overdoses continue to climb. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what we're trying to do with our show is to 
unpack the statistics and to humanize them because I think there is still this understanding with people or this idea with people that this is about willpower, this is about moral failing. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish is that we are reframing this in a medical framework, that this is a disease, this is something that needs to be described as a disease. In the show, we've talked a lot about how we talk about it, the language that's around it, and really just trying to take that shame, that stigma away and giving people a space to say, you know, this is a thing that is killing more people now than car accidents. So that means that it's affecting a lot of people. It's not something that happens to one group. It happens to every group. It's affecting everyone. And so I think that the conversation, like Mayor Myrick says, is leading to progress, but we are absolutely not there yet. Not even close. Stephanie, why is your podcast called Last Day? And then how did you get to that as the framing for how you wanted to enter the conversation? So I came to this against my will. This is something I never wanted to do. My little brother died in 2015 of a heroin overdose. He, in addition to being my brother and, you know, my favorite person on the planet, he was a very successful stand-up comedian. Mayor Myrick can tell you all about his work on Parks and Recreation because it's his favorite show, I learned when I interviewed him. And he did a bunch of incredible things, but he also was a person with an addiction. And when he died, I felt like I had no idea how we had gotten there. I was like, my brother is the smartest person I know. How did this happen? What could I have done differently? And I think this is a common refrain for families who lose people too soon. They're trying to piece it together after the fact. They're trying to figure out what their culpability is. And so with Last Day, what we're trying to do is to zoom in on a person's last day of life and to ask those questions. How did this person get there? And then zoom out and figure out how are we all getting here? We're talking to every single person you could imagine that has a stake in this space and asking them, what could we have done differently? And it's been incredibly eye-opening and it's doing exactly what we wanted to do which is that I am learning so much that I didn't know that I wish I had known and the idea that we want to humanize this and get it away from these impersonal statistics you hear a number like 72,000 and I don't know where to put that I don't know what 72,000 people looks like I know it's a stadium that's all I know But I know what one person looks like, and I know what one person looks like with their family and in their community, and that's what we're trying to highlight. And Mayor Myrick, you know, I remember a while ago when you were trying to push people to think differently around safe injection sites and harm reduction, you faced a lot of pushback. How were you able to win people over? What was your argument? I think I should be very honest that the largest pushback came from two corners. I mean, there's one corner that just feels like personal responsibility is the answer and that anybody who starts to use drugs deserves to die. And those are folks that I haven't spent a lot of time trying to win over. But the second biggest corner was actually from our community. It's from the community of color. It's from people like my family. You know, the big part of the reason I got into public service is because My father's addiction pulled him away from our family, led him to be arrested some dozen times, and was the reason that I was raised in a homeless shelter. And I thought that we could do better. And I thought that this moment, this moment where people are recognizing that drug use crosses all ethnic, racial, class boundaries, was a time to build a new system. 
And what I found was that a lot of folks in my own community, in the black community, were like, they were feeling not vindictive, but they were feeling scarred. Nobody was talking about supervised injection facilities for my uncle or for my brother or for my cousin. Nobody was talking about treatment or diverting people out of jail when it was our neighborhood. So why should we invest in this new paradigm, even if it saves lives, even if all the data, the research coming out of Portugal, out of Switzerland, out of Canada, out of Australia, proves that it works? Why should we buy in? And I think that's a real call for empathy. It's a real moment to say, shouldn't we care about folks even if they didn't care about us? Shouldn't we want to save every life even if they didn't want to save our lives? Isn't this a chance to prove that we are all human? And if that fails, and that fails about 50% of the time, (laughs) about half the time that doesn't work, then you appeal to self-interest. You say, look, these epidemics are complicated. The global forces that cause them are almost impossible to predict. And nobody can say 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now what community will be suffering from the next drug epidemic. And isn't it safer, isn't it smarter to build a system now that treats us all like we're people, that recognizes the best data, the best science, and strives to get everybody access to health care so that if the next epidemic uh, affects only people of color or predominantly people of color, we'll have a system in place that's different than just, you know, lock them up. Stephanie, what have you learned in this process on the other side of the epidemic, helping people make sense of just the enormity of the problem? What have been your takeaways? Like, or how have you talked to people in ways that have helped them understand that this is something that we can solve, that this isn't just like a problem that exists in the world that we're just stuck with? Yeah, it's, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I started, I definitely thought this was just a problem in the world we're going to be stuck with. I personally thought, you know, this is a death sentence. I remember very distinctly when my brother told me he was shooting heroin. I thought, oh, oh, he's going to die, you know. And I think that's a misperception. And I think part of that is steeped in the reality of how we have dealt with treatment in this country. Mayor Myrick's talking about this. You know, we are so afraid of progress, of things that are working you know, data-driven solutions, progressive solutions. People hear overdose prevention site or safe injection site, and they think, I don't want that in my community, but it's something that is saving people's lives. So if we could kind of get over that, that would be one thing. But in addition to that, it's like these abstinence-based 30-day rehab programs are really problematic. It's the thing that I thought was really the only solution or one of the only options when My brother was struggling with this, and I've learned so much doing the show about how those 30-day programs, while they may work for other forms of addiction, they can be really fatal for an opioid use disorder. And the reason is twofold. One is that a person will go into a 30-day program or a 60-day program or a 90-day program, and if they are fully abstinent in that program, if they are completely off of of the drug, they've been detoxed, they are sober, categorically sober, and then they go out into the world and they have a recurrence of their disease, they can overdose and die. So tolerance is what leads to overdose deaths in many instances. You think you can take the same dose and that's the dose that kills you. So your tolerance is affected, that's huge. And secondarily, what these programs do is that they take you out of your community So that when you go back into your community, you have no support system in place there 
for you to continue to live the way you were living in the rehab. So in the rehab, you are in this incredible, perfect bubble where you have support, you have community, you have therapy, you have all of these resources, right? And it's great. And you're healthy. And then you go back out and none of that exists. So I'm trying to encourage us to think more holistically about it so that it's not a one-size-fits-all in terms of treatment. You can go to one of these centers. You can go to a treatment facility in a rehab. But you need to be probably doing the gold standard while you're there, which is medication-assisted treatment, like buprenorphine, like Suboxone, these drugs that you know, you take a low dose every day like you would any sort of medication for Parkinson's or diabetes or, or any chronic illness. And it curbs your, your craving for opioids. It reduces the chance of that fatal overdose that I talked about. These are really great medications. The problem there is that you have to get this DEA waiver as a physician to prescribe these medications. And so only something like 5% of doctors have gotten this waiver. So they're not easy to come by. And the irony there is not lost on me that partially why we're in this mess is because doctors have been overprescribing pain medication like opioids, OxyContin, and now the medication that will help to curb overdose deaths, they can't prescribe. So it's a mess in a lot of ways, but I feel like we know what does work. And that's what's been surprising to me is that I have learned that this is not a fatal disease. It is a chronic illness, but it is not a fatal illness. I couldn't agree more. Every single one of these deaths is a policy failure. The right policies could save every single user's life. And recognizing that, uh, you're so right, those 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, the relapse rate coming out of those is 90%. 90%. What's next? You know, you've tried to make Ithaca a proof point for people, and people certainly said that it wasn't possible or wouldn't lead to the outcomes that you suggested. How do we push more cities to think about this? Are there misconceptions that you've had to work with leaders on, Mimarek? Progress is happening. You know, I've been relentless personally working on and lobbying the mayor of Boston, who's recently come on board, whose own experience with addiction. It first led him to say, you know, AA worked for me and everybody else should just do that. And as he learned more and read more, really has come on board and said, oh, this is a different kind of problem and harm reduction and uh, medication is the way to, to get answers. Same with uh, Mayor de Blasio, the mayor of the most important, I think, the most important city of the country. We've recently got him to come on board, as well as Seattle, San Francisco, places throughout the nation. So I think we will see, as we've often seen, and this happened too with our last great harm reduction push, the push to create syringe exchanges throughout the country, is that some cities are going to get there sooner. They're going to save more lives. They're going to become safer places to live. And the communities who get their last will be the ones that suffer. And for that, I think the answer here is elections. We need to elect better people. We need to elect them faster. We need to go to the state level, elect better governors. And uh, we need a president who actually, uh, boy, we need a president. Right, right, right. We need a president. <laughs> we need a president. Right, we need a president. Uh, <laughs> we need a president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a president would be would be great on this issue as and so many others who listened to experts who understood science who didn't scapegoat people and I think if we did that then we could help those communities who who might otherwise be last in line. Stephanie, I wanted to ask you like how have you found supporting family members in the sense that you came to this as you said like not by choice as a family member of someone who was battling addiction? 
What have you seen to be effective in helping people who are impacted by addiction but are not addicted themselves make sense of how to be the best support, how to love, how to not enable, like do all of those things? I unfortunately hear from most family members after they have lost their person and they're reaching out to say, hey, I read your book or I listened to the trailer and I lost this person and I lost that person. But the whole reason this thing is happening is because someone reached out to me who had lost her brother the same way. And you know that person. It's your producer, Jessica Cordova Kramer. And she had lost her brother in 2017 of a fentanyl overdose. And here we were just perfect strangers. But the first time we talked, it felt like I'd known her my entire life because we had this shared trauma. And just doing this show and telling her brother's story and and reaching out to people online. And I mean, the emails we've gotten have just been, you could sort of make a template. And what they say is that I feel completely unseen. Nobody seems to understand what I'm going through. And I heard your story and you understand and I feel connected and I feel like I belong to a community for the first time in however long. And that's really powerful. And I think that for people who are currently struggling with this, that the idea of community and connection feel not natural when when someone is in their disease the symptom of the disease is that you do terrible things you need to use drugs or you feel like you're going to die your brain needs those drugs to survive it is as important to you as oxygen if not more important and so you act out you steal you lie you do whatever you have to do to get those drugs and so for family members who are dealing with that there's this misperception that you know, this old intervention model where you say, if you don't go to treatment now, you're out of the family and I will have no contact with you. And, you know, you put them in a room and tell them all the terrible things you've done. There's data that suggests that isn't effective. It's not effective to put somebody in a room and tell them what a terrible person they are and then say, meet my demands or else. And so I think approaching it with compassion, approaching it with love, approaching it with the knowledge that this is a disease of brain structure and function and that relapse is part of the disease and just trying to stay connected as best you can. It doesn't make sense to move into somebody's house and act as their bodyguard as much as you want to. I certainly wanted to do that with my brother, but I had a baby at the time that I was nursing. I couldn't move into his house in LA. I lived 2,000 miles away. So, you know, we have to find ways to stay connected, stay in a place of love and support, even when it feels like you don't want to. Because what other choice do you have, you know? (laughs) And if they're your family, if they're your friend, if they're your loved one, you want them to live. And that's how we're going to get there, is through love. Just coming out of the shadows is the first step towards making progress. Because for my family, I mean, we didn't talk about my father even inside the family. It was just something that we lived with our entire life and never discussed because it was somehow embarrassing. We thought it reflected badly on us. And we thought, it, well, we were the only person who ever had a person in our family who was addicted. And it wasn't until I started, and I was sort of forced to talk about it because people asked when we came up with the Ithaca plan, they're like, why do you care about this so much? Why don't you just leave it alone? This is, you know, you got elected, you're about to be reelected, you don't need all this stuff. So I had to say, well, this matters to me on a personal level. And I was surprised. Everybody in the meeting came up to me and whispered, actually, yeah, my, my father too, my mother too, my cousin too. 
But the fact that nobody could say that out loud in the room meant that we couldn't compare stories. We couldn't spot patterns. We couldn't recognize ways in which the system had failed every single one of our family members. I think there are a lot of people who are sufficiently convinced that addiction is a public health issue who are also like, how is fentanyl, which is not like growing on trees, how is it in so many people's communities in this way? What do we do about that? Yeah, smart targeted enforcement really helps. I think it also helps to decriminalize drugs. They both sound contradictory, but they're really not. You know, we made alcohol legal, right? But we regulate it so that when you pick up a bottle of beer, you can look on the side and you can say, oh, that's 6% alcohol, right? Or you buy a bottle of bourbon and you say, okay, that's 40% alcohol. And never inside that 40% alcohol bottle is actually 90% alcohol because we have regulators who uh, check and make sure. I think that would go a long way. Uh, now, I think we're a long way in this country from doing that, from doing what Portugal, for example, has done. So in the meantime, we can continue, I think, very smart, targeted enforcement, fentanyl, much of which is coming from, from China, of course, trying to stop that before it makes its way through our ports. It's not coming for the large part over the southern border. So it's convenient for the president to say so. It's just not true. It's coming through the ports. I think, though, we need to be aware of you know, what's called the iron law of prohibition, which is that when you try and prohibit something, it just becomes more potent, more powerful, and more deadly as smugglers and drug dealers try and shrink it down to size to make it through. That iron law of prohibition works, by the way, for the same way for like weapons. And that's why we've seen an explosion of AR-15s in this country is because even though we didn't prohibit them, the NRA convinced half the country that President Obama was in the process of prohibiting them. And so they sold a ton of them uh, because people thought, oh, I, I need to buy it now in the last week before you know the president comes for our weapons. Stephanie, what do you want people to know about Last Day, about your podcast? We're trying to do a few things here. We're trying to obviously reach these people who are personally touched by this, who are affected by it, who uh, have family members who are personally struggling with it. It's going to help you. It's going to be a really good resource for you. It's going to make you feel like there's somebody out there that understands what you're going through, that hears you, and that can provide some some solutions. I would love it if people who completely disagree would listen to the podcast. I can't tell you the amount of times online. I can't count them. My brother was relatively, you know, a public figure. And so it's carte blanche to just bash him, even though he's he's dead. People will say, oh, he's a junkie. He deserved to die. Anyone who sticks a needle in their arm deserves to die. I would love for them to listen to the show because I feel like they need to be educated, right? It, it's it's. I can understand how you would think that. It seems like a choice. But please listen and know that it's not. I didn't expect when we started, I thought we were going to tell some personal stories and, you know, form this community, which we are. What I didn't expect was how much progress I think can be made and how many solutions I was going to find along the way. There are two questions that we ask everybody. One is there are a lot of people who feel like they have done everything in this moment. They've called, they've emailed, they've protested, they have testified, they've done all the things they were supposed to do, and the world has not changed in the way they thought it would. What do you say to those people? When I do feel that way, I try, I try two things. I try uh, caffeine first. <laughs> uh, yeah, it changes often my perspective. Uh, you'll double shot of espresso, and I go, you know what? We can change the world. And then the, the second thing I try is perspective. I think about the people who changed my life 
the people who fought even before I was born to change my life, the suffragists, the abolitionists who fought for decades to put somebody like Abraham Lincoln in a position of power and then pressured that president to emancipate the slaves. I think of people like Rosa Parks who fought her entire life just leading up to that one snapshot that we're all familiar of, of her sitting on the bus. And I remember the difference it's made in my life to go from a dirty little kid off to an Ivy League school and to get elected to office in my 20s. And I realized that, you know, if they had tried for a year and a half and then given up, if they tried for three years and then given up, if they tried for five years and then given up, my life wouldn't be what it was. My sisters, my brothers' lives wouldn't be full of the joy and satisfaction and pride that they are. So I remember that this is a long project and that there are other little kids counting on me. And and I take that shot of espresso and I get right back to it. I think what I have done, like in the depths of despair, is open your eyes in the morning. Just open your eyes, feel how you don't want to get out of bed, and then just make your body sit up and then put one foot on the floor and then put the other foot on the floor and and go that slowly if you need to. And that sometimes is the biggest action that we're able to make in one day is to open your eyes. That can feel like the greatest stride. And then other days, you can do a little bit more, you know. So where in your day or where in your life can you take a tiny piece of action? And where can you just do something? So I just think whether it's opening your eyes one day or passing a law in your state, where can you make an impact? That's what gives me hope. We are, we are powerful people. Human, humans are powerful. And then the last question is, what is a piece of advice that both of you have gotten that uh, has stuck with you? Honest to God, most of my the mantras that run from my head were uh, written by Harris Whittles for Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope, in Parks and Rec. And so what Leslie, you know, once said, which I really took to heart, was she goes, I don't mind when my constituents are screaming in my face because what I actually hear is them loving their city really loudly in my face. And I really, really like that. And I try and use that to keep me motivated and keep me going. And then the second bit of advice came from the president himself, my president, President Obama, who exhorted me to not run for office because I wanted to to be someone, but only if you wanted to do something. And in moments in which I can just be self-satisfied that I've become someone, that I have a title, that I got elected, I try and remember that exhortation that that's not enough. You have to do something with this power or else it was all for nothing. I will also quote Harris Whittles in real life. Uh, I have a really good ability to freak out about everything that I don't know yet. And uh, Harris always used to say, quit future tripping. And I love that. And it's just, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, the world is what it is. But just try as much as you can to be where you are right now and to take that in and And whenever I start to spiral, I always think, quit future tripping. Well, thank you both so much for joining us in Alpazi of the People. Thanks, Duray. Thanks, Duray. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Alpazi of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.